You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My conversational partner today, Dr. Stuart Clark, widely read astronomy journalist, holds a PhD in astrophysics, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Independent named him one of the stars of British astrophysics teaching, a quite a befitting title and uh, one I'm sure you're proud of. Uh, Dr. Stuart Clark, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Oh, hi, Lewis. It's a real pleasure to be on here. It's a pleasure to have you. So I want to start off. Um, I first reached out to you after I listened to you feature on one of my favorite podcasts, Brian Cox's The Infinite Monkey Cage. Um, I really enjoyed that episode and, and it's what prompted me to, to look into your book Beneath the Sky and then reach out to you um, to have this conversation. And so there was one thing you said on that podcast that really struck a chord with me. And as soon as I heard you say it, I think I fired off the email to you straight away. It was this idea that we that we share the same night sky as, you know, all these great people from the past. We have the same night sky as a William Shakespeare. And, you know, the same night sky that we look at is the, you know, it's the same one he would have looked at. And so what, what does that feeling mean to you? And why is that so inspiring when you think about that? Yeah, that was a big realization for me, actually. And it came about um, a number of years ago when I was on a promotional book tour in Canada. And I was just talking to uh, my audience over there and uh, just said quite casually, even without particularly thinking about it, you know, we, we all look at the same night sky. And I was there promoting a book called The Sky's Dark Labyrinth, which is all about the history of the subject. And, and, it, and it struck me in that moment, you know, of course, these are the same stars that Kepler and Galileo looked at as well. And intellectually, of course, I knew that. But there was something about that moment, about being in a faraway land in front of people, you know, with a different culture to mine. Uh, and... I realized that was the common touchstone and not just for all of us on the planet alive today, but essentially for all of, all of us who've sighted and who have ever lived. And so it's, it, I mean, it really did. It struck me almost, you know, like a hammer blow that to stand beneath the night and to look at the night sky and to experience that sort of wave of feeling and emotion mm. That's a common human emotion. That's a common human touchstone, a common human experience. And so it gives empathy um, you know, for, for everyone who's ever lived almost. And that's sort of one of the ways in which this whole book Beneath the Night started. And I started to really dig into that and sort of mine it for everything that I could sort of get out of it. Yeah, I remember after I listened to that, I was preparing for a, a podcast that evening um, and it was it was a podcast just touching on philosophy and so I had a few philosophy books out the back garden and I was reading in the night and I remember just looking up and thinking like all these people I'm reading about like 
rather than just reading about the ideas and then sort of existing in my mind as these almost like characters. It almost brought me that deeper connection to them and and made me realize I, I live in the same world that they did and I have and I have that sort of human connection with them rather than rather than them just existing as as yeah as characters in my mind. Yeah, you've got it absolutely exactly. That's the same thing that really that really hit me. This is a common human experience that you know anyone that we to we we meet, we could probably have this conversation and find out how that 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 sort of influences them and affects them. How they feel when they are either beneath the night, you know, looking up at the stars themselves, or seeing images of space online and in films and that and that kind of thing how we relate to the universe is is a as you know a, a common thing well we mentioned um i think it's your latest book there beneath the night what is it about the night sky exactly that fascinates you so much and can you remember a sort of point in your life where you know you first started to get attracted and drawn to it yeah, this is a really fascinating question because I explored it a lot to try and write about it. And one of the reasons it had never occurred to me to write about this before is that I never remember a time when I wasn't fascinated by the night sky. There's, there's just no time when I can say, um, this was the moment that I became interested in the stars. Or, you know, I was always reading about it or watching programs about it on television um, if there was anything at all that was a catalyzing moment then I think it has to be when I was 10 years old and I was in the cinema it was 1978 and I saw Star Wars for the first time and that brought everything together this kind of epic imaginative um story that, that um the, the amazing views you know of of the night sky i can remember sort of vividly the cinema being plunged into darkness as say the millennium falcon takes off from tatooine and and having that same feeling like i had when i was outside underneath the stars because that's effectively what it was suddenly the cinema went dark it was just all these stars but on top of that you know there was this amazing orchestral music you know and that got me that really fired my interest in big oops sorry uh, that really oh i've got i've got books falling over in here let me get rid of those so. the true academic uh, yeah look at you, you we're on <laughs> zoom you can you can see how messy this office is um and that was like that big catalyzing moment everything that i loved about space which was that you know it's a real place and yet it can be a venue for the most imaginative things that you can possibly think up. And, you know, it's big soundtrack. It all just seemed to come together for me. And in some senses, you know, when I'm outside, you know, beneath the night now, just looking up at the constellations, I, I can still tap into that childlike sense of wonder um, about it all. It's interesting you mentioned Star Wars here. This is something I've heard um, Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about many a times and, you know, how his experience watching these types of movies is quite different. And for you, someone with a PhD in astrophysics, how do you, how does that differ when you watch movies that are, you know, based in space, something like Interstellar or Star Wars, all these things? Does it, 
are you the type of person who's sitting there watching a movie and pointing out to everyone in the room why that's wrong? <laughs> only, only if they try to make it into a very big plot point. Hmm. Okay. There's a, there's a there's a bit in in gravity. Um, I think it's gravity uh, where there's like a, a, a tension on a tether. Um, yeah. and I, th- I think the astronaut sort of lets himself go off the off the tether. Mm. There's no force that would apply in that situation. There, there would there would be no tension on that tether. So it 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 annoys me <laughs> in, in that sense when you're using a point of physics to, yeah. to try and make a big dramatic thing, and it's just daft. And <laughs> you know, one conversation with a physicist you know, would have come up with a, a myriad different ways to play that scene out and achieve the same end, but still keep the science right. Mm. When we think about something like Star Wars, however, I don't mind anything that goes on in okay. that. And the reason for that is because it doesn't pretend to be scientific. Mm. The, 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 the universe there is, is this backdrop or a timeless story that echoes from you know times of classical antiquity up to the modern day, and I think will resonate with us throughout the rest of time. It's just mythic storytelling, set in you know, to timeless stories set in a timeless universe. You know, so th- and I think that's one of the things that that's that's the true magic, say, of of that. Um, it just it just feels right to be setting this big mythic story of heroes and villains and sidekicks and all of that, you know, in, you know, this realm of infinite possibilities. I mentioned earlier about when I was reading some philosophy the other night and I was, you know, reading some, some Seneca and uh, Marcus Aurelius and, you know, going back all these, all these years and to all these older civilizations. And it made me wonder, what do we know about how, older civilization viewed the night sky what did what did they believe and more importantly what did they get out of it as humans yeah in my, in many ways there when they looked at the night sky and tried to interpret it they they really constructed a, a what we'd now call a theory of everything so it was it was perplexing to them why there was this beautiful universe around them. They wanted to know the reason um, for that. And they also noticed particular coincidences, you know, like the seasons, the, the constellations are different in the different seasons. And, you know, the, the, it's a natural question to ask why that is. You know, we now know, of course, it's because of the Earth's orbit around the sun and we get the seasons because of the tilt on the earth's axis but they took a more direct approach than that and they just wondered if the seasons and the weather in fact were influenced by what um, celestial objects were in the sky at that time and so this is the beginnings of astrology as a way of trying to understand what the link between the earth and particularly humans is with this wider cosmos. And this is, I mean, this is absolutely perennial. This thread of trying to understand how we link to the wider universe has been with us for thousands of years. I suspect before even that. 
And, you know, and now we don't do it with astrology anymore because there's no measurement instrument that we can use that measures these influences. And if there's going to be influences like that, you would expect them to couple to matter in some way. You know, if we're going to be influenced by the planets and the stars, then there needs to be some force or some mechanism by which that happens. And if there's a mechanism by which it happens, then in principle, we should be able to build an instrument to measure that. And we simply can't. Um, so they, uh, they, they began to sort of look in that direction. Uh, nowadays, of course, we have a scientific link to the wider universe. And that is through the, the, the buildup of atoms in the universe. So when the universe began 15 billion years ago, it was just hydrogen and helium. And still today, 98% of the universe are those two gases. And we understand how they come about. Um, the other 2% are all the things that make things interesting. There's the, they're the elements that, that give us planets, that give us life. You know, the, 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 the iron in your blood, the, the oxygen in your lungs, the calcium you know, in, your, in your bones, the carbon in your very DNA all of those atoms were built inside the hearts of massive stars and you know billions of years ago so scientifically we have now found this way to link ourselves to the wider universe we wouldn't be here without this vast universe and these stars which are like chemical factories changing one element um, into another so that's, I think, a really interesting sort of touchstone as well, you know, from the ways that, say, the ancients looked at the stars um, to the way we do today. And there are many other things that they did. It's very clear, you know, from sites like Stonehenge, for example, that um, funerary processes and how we venerate the dead seem somehow linked to the night sky. Uh, that, that you know, the, the the alignment of the pyramids with the, the cardinal points of the compass; those those kinds of things make it make it look pretty incontrovertible uh, that somehow we related um, death and the night sky. And of course, as soon as we have sort of written religions and things like that, we have a concept of heaven, which makes it explicit um, as a teaching. So it's, it's super fascinating to look at all the different ways uh, that we related to the night sky and continue to do so as well. So in the sense that um, religion is often talking about, you know, the perfect paradisical realm of heaven, which if we picture it as being anywhere, we sort of picture it as being up there, you know, somewhere in the night sky. The, the, a, a show like Star Trek, for example, which imagines a much better society in the future, you know, existing uh, in space and traveling from planet to planet in starships. You know, technologically, we might, we might reject religion and spirituality, but we hold on to the idea that uh, the vision of utopia, as it were, can be achieved technologically and in space, for example. Something you mentioned there about you know, um, our makeup and how, it, you know, how it connects and, and, and all starts with the stars. Is that where this saying comes from? I think it's, it's Neil deGrasse Tyson that says there a lot that we are essentially stardust. 
that's exactly yeah, where it comes from. It's the work of Fred Hoyle, the British astrophysicist. Uh, and he has a very, it, the, so the story goes, it's sort of much more mundane, um, his, his version of this story. Uh, but of course, uh, being in the mid 20th century, it seems like there was very traditional um, gender roles in that household. And he sort of arrived home to his wife in the kitchen uh, one day. And he said, I know where the iron in your um, saucepans comes from. Uh, and that, that was the way he announced that he had solved this problem of the buildup of the, the chemical elements. Whether that's an apocryphal story um, or an, <laughs> a, a verified true one, um, I don't know. Hmm. Oh, that's quite poetic is the way you put it, but I, I like it just as much. So if we that does give us that sort of connection uh, to the night sky. So what do you get from the night sky? We talked a lot about um, those past civilizations. What do you get when you look up at the night sky and how does it make you almost reflect back in on yourself? Yes, that's exactly what it does. And it, it comes down to, um, it comes down to experiencing this feeling of awe and having uh, the, the, the experience of sort of the sublime emotion you know and it's always about look how small i am you know in all this vast universe and and yet i'm here to see it you know i i am i am i am alive and conscious and trying to make sense of what it's like to be in this vast universe and that that's just one of those big cocktails of emotion then it seems it seems at, at one level it makes you really small you know and yet at another level it is extremely empowering you know because we have these mental faculties and senses that allows us to have thoughts about thoughts and to abstract um, information from our environment and think about what it means and that ultimately is inspiring to me you know it, it so when i stand out beneath the night sky i'm filled with the beauty of it um the extraordinary um luck at the being alive within it you know and you know a great hope um to understand and to be better and you know think that the future is worth um you know worth waiting for worth working towards uh, and all of those kinds of things when you were talking there it reminded me of um of a quote i just had to try and pull it up in front of me it's uh, t.s Eliot. it says we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. How does that it, quote it, make you feel? Yeah, it, it, it's exactly that, really. It's mm. exactly that. One of the interesting things that I, that I discovered whilst I was writing this book is that uh, a lot of people who have come up through a science background, you know, we are the people that kind of feel this, this, this urge and this connection in, in hugely, 
you know, in, in this kind of like massive sense. So an overwhelming sense that we have to, you know, devote our time, our careers and our energies to trying to understand a little bit more about a tiny part of the universe and contribute to this body of human knowledge. Um, but so many of us can't articulate why we're driven to do that. It's, it's so, it, it feels so innate that we, we don't even really think about it. And that was this big process that I went through um, in you know, writing Beneath the Night and trying to understand why I've been enthralled to the stars literally for my whole life. And first part of that was to try and find other people who had articulated similar thoughts. And I did, I, I've, I found many of them. Um, Johannes Kepler, for example, the great German mathematician who um, understood mathematical orbits uh, or understood orbits mathematically for the, for, for the very first time. He said, um, you know, we shouldn't ask why we're interested in the stars, and I'm really paraphrasing this. Um, he, he said, because we don't ask why the songbird sings. We just accept that it's in the nature of a songbird to sing. And so we shouldn't ask why human beings want to understand you know, the night sky, God's realm, heaven, the universe, call it whatever you want. That's just who we are. That's just totally you know, within us. And I think it takes the, um, the more literary people to fully articulate this. And the philosophers of the 18th century did a superb job um, of understanding what it feels like and, and putting into words you know, what it feels like to stand beneath a night sky and experience it in an emotional way rather than an intellectual way. But both of those endeavors, the intellect and the emotion, are the same route to try and to derive meaning from it. There's a big um, saying in the personal development space. It's called weaponizing your curiosity. And since I started this podcast three years ago, I spend most of my days asking a lot of questions and, and being curious. And since I started asking a lot of questions, it's almost had this effect on my life I don't know I just feel a lot like there's a lot my life's a lot brighter there's you know I'm a bit more inspired they seem a bit more optimistic just all through curiosity do you think how important do you think curiosity is and do you see it as a little bit of a superpower yes I think it's absolutely essential to uh, happiness and well-being just to be able to yeah I would just be curious just you know, and, and people approach it in different ways, you know, and there's a, there's people talk about being mindful of your environment. So just noticing things in your environment um, around you on an everyday base sort of level and basis. And, and that's moving in this direction for me. It's, it's just to just be aware of, of, of everything that's going on and be curious about why it's going on, how it's how it, it's it's going on, and just to experience the wonder of it, that it's there's it is like this um, idea that there's a, a hidden clockwork machinery almost to the universe, and when we're curious and we look, um, you know, we we sort of catch a glimpse of it sometimes, 
and little things slot into place for us. And those moments are just joyful. You make a connection between two things and suddenly those things have meaning. You know, things don't happen for random, unconnected reasons in nature, you know, and that's, so I can, let's see, I can, you know, I can see the sun setting and, you know, if it's very low down uh, behind some sort of mist or clouds or something like that, I can, I can look at it in its entirety. I can look at it directly because the clouds are diffusing the, the harmful light, you know, out. And I can just think that's a beautiful sight. And, you know, my curiosity about why does the sun shine, you know, and all of that, that's led me down the path of astrophysics. So I now understand that these, it makes light because of nuclear fusion that's going on in the core. The core is at a couple of million degrees um, uh, centigrade, you know, a temperature I can't, I can't get my head around. And then to hold it at that temperature, the sun needs to be so dense that the individual particles of light, the photons that are created in the core there can take 100,000 years to fight their way out of the sun. And then when they get to the surface, it's eight minutes for them to cross the 93 million miles between the sun and the earth and arrive at my uh, eye, be registered on my retina and fire the neurons in my brain to have these thoughts. And all of that is happening because of a process that took place in the sun before any human walked the earth. And wow. suddenly you're in this sort of deep cosmic time realm and, and you're integrally related to that. You are part of this grand sweep of cosmic history, you know, and that's, that's just amazing. It is a superpower to sort of glimpse yourself in in that broad sweep of time like that absolutely and one i love this type of thinking and some people may think it's quite depressing to you know to think about how small you know we are and how small a part we play in the observable universe but something i've been doing over the last couple of months um to sort of battle anxiety so if i'm ever feeling really anxious about something if there's you know a a, a meeting i have to go to and i just I think to myself, this is like the most important thing in the world is, you know, so much pressure. It's like the, is the biggest thing going on in my life right now. I pull up this video on my phone on YouTube where it's, it zooms in on the earth and it just slowly for three minutes, it just zooms out into the observable universe. And it sort of gives you perspective on just how small the planet is um, when we zoom out. And all of a sudden then after I watch that, I think, okay, my problems aren't so big. Like it's not all doom and gloom. And so it does help me to think like that. But does this, does the size of the earth in the observable universe make you personally feel small or inspired or empowered? Yeah, all three mm. really. And in some sense, they're all, they're all interrelated. It does fascinate me, you see, why, why we are such a small part of this vast universe mm. you know but i and i also believe that that's the kind of question that we're not equipped to answer yet we haven't done enough work on on answering the other things so you know questions are sort of really easy to um ask and they come very naturally to us and they're fun 
um, to talk around. But if one gets too um, caught up on getting the answers to these things, then I think it's a little bit of a trap. Uh, so the, the idea is to, for me anyway, is to be aware of these grand mysteries, that being one of them. Why, are, why, why is the universe so huge? Um, but not wind yourself up into knots about it and sort of bring it down to a level where you can make a meaningful contribution to perhaps one day humans having an answer for that. We've talked about curiosity and how that's a superpower. So why do you think that people are so desperate in this pursuit of finding at least bacterial life on another planet? Why are we so, so driven by that? And I think for most of the world's population, we want that to be true. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think, we, you know, we, none of us want to be alone. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's part of what, what it is and and it goes towards this is you know we this relates to that previous question that we just had you know why is there such a vast universe or you know why is the earth so small in this vast universe and and perhaps the universe won't seem so small or so pointlessly large if it is widely populated then it's just an abode of life so it, it, this is the interconnectedness of these big questions. So we can take that huge one, break it down, and then you know that comes all the way down to people in labs making instruments to look for the chemicals of life or even you know microbes on Mars, for example. That's them doing something that they can. It's an achievable goal. You know when we when we when we we're, we're counselled for um, uh, you know, mental health issues, we're told to set ourselves achievable goals, you know, smart goals, things that you can concentrate on and do, have a reasonable chance of, of doing. And, and this is sort of what the nature of, of good quality science is. It's to try and break things down in such a way that you can do small, incremental, achievable things in service of something that's much larger than you are. What do you think is more scarier, being alone in the universe or not being alone in the universe? <laughs> I mean, it, it's super interesting, isn't it? Because if, it, you know, if we are alone in the universe, in some senses that puts a lot of pressure on us. And you know, these are these, this conversation and this discussion, you know, people like Arthur C. Clarke, you know, uh, did a lot of discussion of this kind of thing. And a lot of his uh, novels are about exactly that. What's the, what does it mean to be alone in the universe? Um, you know, what if there are other life forms in the universe? They're so far removed from us, we can't relate to them in any way. Does that make us feel even more alone or, you know, so what is the scarier one? I don't know is the answer. It's okay. one of those questions that I've genuinely had an open mind about. Yeah. I haven't got a set idea of whether there must or must not be um, other life in the universe. I'm fascinated to find out though. <laughs> I, me I mentioned the, your appearance on the Infinite Monkey Cage, cage at the top of this conversation. One of the things that you talked about was 
the idea of us being the consciousness of the universe. I wonder if you could just expand and explain that to the audience. Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting, you know, thought. And again, it's not unique to me. You know, the science fiction writers have talked about this and Carl Sagan as well. You know, we are able to understand the universe in principle. We're able to understand the universe. And that's what a lot of us you know, spend our lives doing. And even if we're not working astronomers, a lot of us are fascinated to find out more and to be entertained by these programs about the wider universe. Mm. And you know, we have these mental faculties that can see the universe and can make sense of it. So at the same time, we are not removed from the universe. We are part of the universe and we are you know, perhaps um, an essential outworking of the, the, the physics and the chemistry of the universe. You know, physics comes first in the universe, interactions between particles. And as those interactions become more complex and the particles themselves begin to interact and bond together, so they take on chemical identities and we, we get to chemistry. And a similar thing happens when those um, chemicals interact at a sufficiently complex level. We cross a threshold into biology and we don't know exactly how that happens at the moment. You know, the origin of life is one of the key scientific mysteries. And then, you know, you see the same thing happening. We have this process of more and more complex living cells uh, which start working together into multicellular organisms. And then at some point we get consciousness appearing in that as well with us. And that allows us to work together to build societies and define cultures. And that allows us to look at the universe and understand the universe. So that's what I was meaning by that. You know, we sort of are the consciousness of the universe, uh, in a, in, a, in a way. Now, what that means, I've no idea. Um, that's something for us to think about. It may be, you know, that when we think about the, the, the early uh, philosophers, that they were very interested, first and foremost, in what was the universe? What made up the universe? And then they became interested in how do I live a good life? I'm lucky enough to be alive in this universe. So what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live a good life within this universe? And maybe we're kind of going through um, a rerun of that sort of thinking. So since the scientific revolution, we've been able to more accurately determine the nature and the content of the universe. And at the present time, we are going through this, this new upheaval of thinking about how society and culture can best live in the universe, by which, of course, we first mean the Earth. And so we want to truly understand, you know, how to sustainably live in our environment. What are the consequences of what we are doing? This is just the same process. It's just abstracted from an individual basis up to the level of, of society now. And so 
perhaps that's also what will happen if our technology improves enough so that we will you know colonize space or begin exploration of space we'll then have to have this same sort of soul searching again what does it mean to be you know a citizen of the galaxy i think it was robert heinlein who who, who coined that phrase we've talked about a lot of topics that are related to to the book we've already mentioned beneath the night this idea of the you know the connection between the the universe and how how it reflects on us as humanity and you know a lot of highbrow stuff but i put on the newsletter the other day that you were you were coming on the show and I went into your background and one of the questions i was uh, begged to ask you a bit of low-hanging fruit for you here but this billionaire space race we have going on at the moment obviously Elon Musk um, and then Jeff Bezos said he was going to be um, on the first commercial flight to space. And then I think it was Richard Branson that came out and announced that he was going to actually do it seven days earlier. How do you react to this? Do you think it's for the right reasons? As an astrophysicist, how do you look upon this story as it unfolds? Yeah, so there are two, there are two things to this. One is a very... One is a very emotional point of view. And again, one is a sort of an intellectual um, point of view. Um, and I find it fascinating that it has taken um, super wealthy individuals to make this happen. So even a super wealthy individual is not as rich as you know a whole country and yet we haven't properly sort of done this kind of you know, going up and down to space for tourism or things like that talked about it a huge amount especially you know in the middle part of the 20th century that this was going to happen and yet for various different reasons um often political often to do with the way um, companies interface with governments and the vast quantity of finance that's usually needed to do anything in that way, you know, we haven't done this. So it takes two competing billionaires, uh, you know, and, and don't forget, you know, Elon Musk is just sort of quietly getting on and he's, you know, I hesitate to say it makes me smile to even think that Elon Musk is not grandstanding, but in, uh, you know, but in comparison to Jeff Bezos and, and Richard Branson at the moment, Elon's taking quite a, you know, he's, he's, he's keeping it on the down low, but he's the one that's got the contracts with NASA to supply the space station and, and to, to build the rockets to go to the moon and, and these kinds of things. Uh, so it fascinates me that it takes individual people who just de decide I want to do this just because I want to do it. And we've reached a time where they can apply their business thinking to cost efficiency. And we've reached a sort of a technological era as well, where it's the, the material sciences and all those things are cheap enough uh, to do this. So I wonder if it's just inevitable that this is the way it was going to happen. Um, the, the thing to worry about is having some sort of Wild West um, free-for-all up there. So the launch of all these, the mega constellations, um, you know, Elon Musk's Starlink satellites, you know, we're, we, the, the, the UK's OneWeb 
constellation and many others. You know, we're talking about putting tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of satellites in orbit, all of which will affect our view of the night sky, all of which will degrade the work of astronomers, forcing them, um, you know, to become cleverer and smarter about what they do and how they do it. But, you know, all of them blocking our view of the natural night sky. Now, it may be that this is just one of those key philosophical turning points in history, that from now on, we will never see the night sky as this, you know, mostly natural, unadulterated place anymore. That this is just, you know, humans um, expanding their dominion. Uh, only, you know, sort of future history will be able to tell. What I do think, um, to answer the question, is that we need a lot of talking about this. We do need to have these conversations about what do we want to do in space? It comes back to the old philosophy of how do we live good lives again? You know, what, what do we want to do in space? Um, how do we want to do that? And how do we want to minimize the effects of doing that on the wider environment you know, of, of the night sky. Let's see space, and there are moves in this direction and discussions you know, within the astronomical community about this, about seeing space as not a nothing, but as an environment that needs conservation and sustaining, just in the same way that any environment on Earth does, and indeed on Mars or any other planet does. It's certainly interesting to see how it plays out. It's definitely one to keep your eyes on. Um, before we move into the, the final uh, questions, the other email that really struck me, um, I mean, quite passionately written as most conspiracy uh, theorists are, but I did get an email explaining to me why that the, why the moon landing was fake. Um, Gotta be honest, didn't read the entire email, gave up after a few sentences. But I wonder for someone like yourself, you must have to, you know, deal with this sort of question quite regularly. How do you respond to these types of people? It does crop up a fair bit. And what interests me the most about it um, is I, I and I still struggle to understand the motivation for um wanting to believe that it was faked I, I kind of do I, I, I do struggle I think I think a lot of these people are genuinely sincere you know they're not they're not crackpots um, and they spend um, a lot of time and effort and, it, and and you know their curiosity is dialed up you know and and, and what, I, what I think it is about, it's about a mistrust of authority and government. That actually we have reached a position where, you know, we should believe that our politicians, our leaders and our governments are, are working for the good of the countries that they represent. And yet, there are numerous examples where that's clearly not the case. And this breeds a distrust, you know, that, that is then all pervasive. And, and so that's, that's how I've sort of come to understand or come, or come to peace with the rise of this belief 
that we never went to the moon and it has risen you know throughout my career i see it a lot more now and the and the return of the flat earth um people wanting to to, to believe that and um, as well um i mean i we did go to the moon you know i mean i yeah i can't I can't see the the vehicles on the moon, you know, through a telescope. The day will come when we're able to do that. Our telescopes will be good enough that you can look and you can just, you know, see the the landers and things that are on there. We take pictures of them from orbits, you know, around the moon all the time. But of course, then, you know, it's being, it, it can, you know, it's, it's yeah. a fake picture and you know, <laughs> uh, all of that kind of stuff. So these people um, that, that, that believe this, so long as they're not... Um, aggressive yeah uh, you know i'm really fine um to to talk to them and understand their their, their points their points of view because i think it's about a, a a deeper thing than the moon landings themselves fantastic i love that so the final two questions i have for you we've mentioned your latest book beneath the night i'm sure it's going to impact so many people's lives but for you, what books have you read in your life that have had a massive impact on you and your career? Uh, Cosmos by Carl Sagan. I mean, it was, it's, that's, that, that was where I just fell in love with this kind of holistic thinking. You know, Sagan was such, um, I mean, he was a philosopher almost more than he was a scientist. He understood science extremely well and he was fascinated by the origin of life um, problem um, I suspect that the work that he was doing um, is not the one that will solve the problem for us um, but he completely understood how you do science and how you do objective science but then he could see these things in the wider context you know, so we had the we 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 briefly discussed discussed um, about Fred Hoyle talking about the iron pots and pans and and then the, the much more poetic phrase about we are all stardust. Well, uh, Carl Sagan had one similar about that same subject as well, and this was in um, the Cosmos book, and he said if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to first create the universe. And that's his way of talking about the buildup of atoms and what it takes to get to something as simple as, and taken for granted as an apple pie. And this goes back to our point about curiosity. Isn't that amazing that you can make those kinds of leaps? Yeah. Another huge influence was James Burke's Connections. And this was a program that I, I watched before I, I read the book. And I watched it when I was quite young. And I, to be honest, I didn't really understand what was going on in that program. I, James Burke lost me uh, a few minutes into most of those um, programs. But there was something so compelling about where he started to where he finished and all the different places he went to along the way. I was gripped by it. And I remember thinking, uh, one day I'm going to understand that. Mm -hmm. I just, that just seems like, you know, a goal I want to, I want to be able to listen to that and understand how all these things, you know, um, fit together. So those are, those are two 
huge and we talked about star wars already um so that was you know and that's the big emotional investment and you know and and just sense of wonder and awe at the whole thing so all the works of arthur c Clarke. my goodness there's you know he may not be able to write characters but boy can he talk about ideas Mm -hmm. and re and and if you read them at the right age i think well any age if you're an open-minded person gosh do they make you think you know it's just super fascinating stuff last question before we start to wrap up i ask every guest this could be anything it could be your family it could be your friends it could be curiosity it could be work can be wherever you want for dr stuart clark right now what makes a life worth living um uh, my guitars all behind (laughs) me um wow they they call to me um, and I can just, in the same way I can lose myself under the night sky, I can lose myself in just, you know, sitting here and just playing. Um, yeah, what makes my life worthwhile? It's, it's, it's being in service to something bigger than myself. And that's astronomy. And that's making my own little contributions to the human experience and you know trying to 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 push our understanding to to do this to talk to people like yourself to make this connection with someone else who's thinking along these same lines you know that's that's actually what makes it worthwhile and the reason i really think that is because science when you when you get something right with science that is in the bag you know, Newton's laws, are you know, they're never going to not be right. You know, we may extend our ideas to different circumstances and different phenomena uh, where those laws don't apply, as Einstein did with general relativity. But Newton's laws are, are in the bank forever. So we can, through science, we can genuinely, you know, build this corpus of knowledge which can't be knocked down. We can choose to disregard it, but so long as we keep it alive, you know, in books and colleges and things like that, um, it's, it's there forever and can be picked up and doesn't need to be rediscovered. So that's, um, yeah, that's what makes it all uh, worthwhile for me. Amazing. And one thing on that subject as well, one thing I think you, do really well um it's the same with brian cox when i was in school when i was in gcse's i remember i had a you know i was interested in the subject but i was never really good at science physics so i was in my gcse's i didn't take physics but um i remember there was an option there was a sort of extracurricular um thing outside of school after school finished you stayed for two hours if you wanted and one of the activities was to do a GCSE in astronomy, strangely enough. And I remember I was watch, I watched a Brian Cox documentary at the time. And it just sort of, it was so relatable to, like, it's so relatable to people who aren't, you know, that academically minded, aren't deep into the physics. It, it makes it relative and, you know, makes a connection with the everyday person. And that inspired me to, you know, to do that little bit of extracurricular there and, and take that GCSE. And, and I think that, you know, people like Brian, people like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson does a really good job. Um, I think his book Astrophysics for, for People in a Hurry is a really good example of that. And I think, you know, the way that you convey your messages does exactly the same because, 
there's a lot of people in that space where they, you know, they can write and talk about it all day long, but it's only going to be understood by one kind of person. Whereas I think the work you do um, speaks to everyone and everyone can understand it. So I thank you for that as well. Oh, thank you very much, Lewis. You know, it's just such, such a pleasure because, you know, the night sky, the universe, uh, this understanding, it is for everyone, you know, and Brian is such an exponent at it. You know, he truly understands what excites people and engages people and can translate these subjects, you know, in in that way. You know, and, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson has his own, um, you know, kind of off the wall uh, personality and his approach at doing this. And this is one of the beauties of it is that it instantly, you know, it, it tells you that there's not just one single sort of classroom way to approach this yeah, you can just love it and express this interest in the in the universe and what we know about it and you don't have to understand the maths you can just be curious and be fascinated and trust the people that do absolutely look let these guys know where they can find out more from yourself and check out beneath the night where can they find you and, and all those books yeah, so you can find me um, online. I'm on Twitter um, at Dr. Stu Clark, D-R-S-T-U-C-L-A-R-K. And I'm online at uh, a woefully um, out-of-date website um, called www.stuartclark.com. Amazing. I'll link all those links in the description below for everyone to check out. Dr. Stuart Clark, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I knew from the, the first time I, I listened to you on our podcast, I knew that we could have a really interesting and engaging conversation and I'm feeling inspired, man. So thank you so much for bringing the value to the show today. Oh, you're so welcome, Lewis. I feel inspired talking to you as well. So please stay in touch. Uh, it's because, you know, you, the podcast that you do is amazing it um you know since you brought it to my attention i've been listening and it's you know super inspiring well thank you so much for joining me again on the freedom pack podcast i really hope you enjoyed this conversation i hope you'll join us again on friday until then please come and check us out on youtube where all these podcasts are uploaded in video format as well as our best bits subscribing to our channel on youtube is the best way that you can help support the show. So we'd really appreciate that. So that is youtube.com forward slash freedom pact. I hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening.